Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Kalen Kastetter. He is CEO of Kastetter Cannabis Group. Uh, They work with New York-based companies, helping them understand cannabis and hemp and how they're going to be successful in building businesses. Kalen has some really interesting background in the cannabis and the hemp space. We're going to hear about that, and then we're going to talk a little bit about what's going on in the New York and New York area around cannabis, where we are as an industry, what our company's doing, what's working, what's not. Kalen has some really good insights and uh, experiences in in working with lots of different businesses. So it should be a really interesting and and helpful conversation, particularly for anyone who's in the New York area and, uh, you know, hopefully anyone who's outside of the New York area will use as an example of you know how some of these states are really kind of putting together the industry. What are the, some of the challenges? What are the struggles? Where are the opportunities? So looking forward to it. With that, Kalen, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. I'm uh, really looking forward to it. It's a uh, pleasure to be on. 
Yeah. So let's do a little background because I know you've got some interesting history in working with cannabis. And so uh, let's cover that and then we can get into kind of what's going on in the New York area. But tell us the backstory. Yeah. So, you know, cannabis is a family business for me, right? Uh, my father started the first hemp infused wine in 1997, back when regulations were even less clear than they are today, if you can imagine yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, unfortunately, he had nationwide distribution, was in Whole Foods over on the West Coast. I was looking to get into Canada. And uh, the federal government yanked his approval. And so unfortunately, it was a business uh, on the hemp side that remained shuttered up until 2015 when we uh, restarted it right here in New York. So um, and then since then, it's been full steam ahead. You know, we've uh, you know been involved in quite a few ventures and have really been able to take the lead here in New York in uh, developing the industry on the hemp side and also setting the groundwork for adult use cannabis, which is really the, the king when we talk about total addressable market. Yeah, yeah. I'm curious, I mean, hemp-infused wine, tell us a little bit about what part of the process were you involved in? Were you growing? Were you infusing? Were you the whole thing? I mean, tell us a little bit about the history of the business. Yeah, so, you know, when he got into it in 97, what he was doing is he was bringing a hemp extract, non-psychoactive hemp extract, over from Holland, actually. It was Mm -hmm. grown on the Holland-German border, and uh, that was a nightmare through customs, as you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) But when we started, it was actually a difficult... One of the first huge big obstacles in restarting that business was finding a source of, you know, something that was similar, right? And because I I was young, I was only like two years old when he had to shut the business down. So I had no knowledge of what the wine was supposed to smell and taste like, right? Yeah. So it was kind of, uh, you know, bringing things to him. Hey, is this it? No. And, and at the time, the supply chain wasn't that large. So I made a lot of calls and finally working with a, um, a CPG company out in in Colorado was able to get something called terpenes, which is, yeah. you know, buzzword now, but then, you know, not many people were talking about it and uh, some trial and error. So we really only worked on the production side. So we sourced finished bulk wine from wineries in the Finger Lakes in New York and also California. And then we would, in, we would do the infusion process, the marketing sales process on, on the side of the wine. And we were not involved in growing at that time, not involved in processing. Actually, you couldn't be, it, you could not be licensed as a grower yeah. at the time. And we were the first processor in the state of New York, actually. Interesting. Interesting. And so, and how, how do you feel that kind of set you up to really kind of understand the industry and kind of the dynamics and the complexities and, and getting you into the business you're doing now? Yeah. Well, so, you know, it was, it was definitely a crash course into how difficult it is to exist in an industry with unclear regulations, right? So we were battling federal regulations, trying to do something in New York that had never been done before. So that knowledge and understanding of how to work around the regulations and work with the government and kind of work around some of the rules, the administrative rules on the federal side was extremely valuable. And we were also ground floor. So, you know, we were able to be introduced to a lot of the other pioneers here in New York, but also the consumer, the customer, right? And Mm. that's key in any business, right? I'm sure uh, you tell your clients, I tell my clients all the time, who's your customer? You need to know your customer. Mm -hmm. So being out there with the wine, it was a grassroots thing, right? Every Saturday morning, we're at the farmer's market. We went to Wine Fest. We wanted to get this product in front of people, tasting at liquor stores, right? And so we were able to go to a consumer who was not an early adopter, who wasn't very familiar with hemp and was being maybe introduced to a hemp product for the first time. And so able to field all these different questions and understand the difficulties really of breaking into a pretty crowded space, which is wine with something yeah. new and trying to disrupt that market. So it was invaluable experience for sure. Oh, I'm sure. I'm, 
And so when did you decide to to focus on, you know, helping other businesses with the in, inside the cannabis industry? How did that play out? Yeah. So, you know, being first and being really out there with the wine, you know, really the first temp product in New York State that people are like, oh, wow, this is going on. You know, obviously we were a magnet for people asking questions, but the opportunity presented itself when New York in 2017 allowed for commercial cultivation of hemp. And so we said, hey, why don't we try to match the cultivars, the strains of hemp that we grow to the flavors of the wine. So we got a growing license and we got into, uh, we founded uh, this company, Cassiter Sustainability Group, which we've transitioned to, to rename Cassiter Cannabis Group. And it's out there as Cassiter Cannabis Group now. And we formed that to to embark on that research to figure out how to grow that hemp. And, and pretty quickly within that first season, we found a lot of growers, you know, a lot of businesses who really needed advice. And this advice went from all the way from the application process through the growing process. Unfortunately, one of my partners, Aldous Lloyd, is a master cannabis grower and his understanding goes back, you know, a few decades. And his understanding for the plant is is really somewhat unrivaled here in the state of New York. So, mm-hmm. you know, we're able to bring that expertise in kind of a more full package, right? And that's when we really started assisting businesses and, you know, working with businesses. And whether that's a farmer or a processor or a brand, uh, we started to develop our, our full suite of, uh, of solutions. Mm-hmm. And, and so who do you typically work with, I guess, and what are, what are the services you provide? Yeah. So, you know, our clients vary, right, from the growing side to the, um, you know, finished uh, consumer package good side, but work a lot with brands, a lot with large operations, in the space that are manufacturing, processing, uh, but also companies that are not actually in the space yet, right? Are not in the cannabis industry, but are looking for advisement on how to enter, right? And that could be from an ancillary perspective. That could be, oh, how can I service the cannabis industry? Or how can I enter? You know, we've also worked with uh, investment firms and helping them with due diligence, understanding regulations, right? Really what we do is we provide clarity. So, Anyone who can benefit from clarity, you know, we've did presentations at law firms and helping train associates and partners of law firms on how to best assist their clients that might be in the industry and might have questions because it's always changing, right? And the dynamics are always changing. The politics are always in flux. So, you know, having that access to information, because if it's not your primary job, if you don't come to work like I and my team do every single day to understand how cannabis in New York and federally, you know, is is playing out, then you can fall behind real quick. Yeah, yeah. And tell us about the New York market. I mean, is is New York just like every other state that's trying to build out a cannabis market? How is it different? Is it unique? Give us a little perspective on on you know how it relates to you know all these states that are kind of building out you know cannabis industries inside their economies. Yeah. So you know it's important because when regulators and and lawmakers look at cannabis, they look at something that needs to be highly regulated, right? That's you know something that is a maybe a danger to the public or mm-hmm. something that comes from the illicit market over to the regular market. And that's important that they pay attention to the fact that it's already a good that's being sold and already a good that has a supply chain built out on the illicit side, right? So when you're regulating it, you can't go too far. And I think we've seen that in a lot of states where they've gone too far with their regulations. California is an excellent example and realize that the illicit market is still very strong and that people are still not purchasing on the legal marketplace, right? So, you know, the farther away a lawmaker or regulator goes from understanding the end customer, the end consumer, the worse off the industry and the marketplace in that state is going to be, right? So 
it's very important that these lawmakers and regulators understand it for what it is. It's a business, right? It's a business mm-hmm. with a consumer. And if you look at it that way, and I think the best parallel to draw is alcohol in terms of a regulatory structure, right? You can tax it, you can mm-hmm. regulate, track it, but at the end of the day, you need to allow the industry to develop. You need to allow capitalism to do its job and innovate products. And you need to allow these successes and failures to happen. You know, unfortunately, we've seen in a lot of states where we almost a monopolization of the marketplace and what you end up having there. And we see this in in Canada right now, in Colorado. And it's a problem because consumers are not getting the products that they want. And there isn't enough room for competition in these places. And that's it's an artificial barrier that that the government has thrown up because of the restriction licensing and regulations. And do you, I guess, what's your take on the kind of the medical adult use split that cannabis has, you know, for, uh, I think in most states have, has kind of followed. I mean, is this, um, is this healthy? Is it not healthy? Is it, you know, does it make sense for you? I mean, what's your kind of assessment of it? Yeah. So, you know, I, it's interesting because when I talk about cannabis and I say this all the time, I look at it from a holistic standpoint, there's industrial uses, there's medical uses, recreational uses, right? So when we talk about adult use and recreational cannabis, we're primarily talking about one cannabinoid and that is THC, right? But there's a host of other cannabinoids and these cannabinoids also affect how you feel from a psychoactive perspective too. So it's tough to draw a line and say, well, there's THC and not THC, that's that's medical and this is adult use. But mm-hmm. the reality is a lot of people use it not as if they would, you know, consume alcohol or, mm-hmm. or, or anything like that, but they, they use it because they really need it from a medicinal standpoint. So that they need that access. And I think when you look at the supplement industry, I think that a lot of medicinal cannabis fits in very well there. When we talk about CBD, mm-hmm. other minor cannabinoids. And the supplement industry, I think, is the right amount of regulations, right? You're going to ensure that you have quality, going to ensure that there is safe product accurately labeled, delivered to the consumer, and big box stores and distributors, supply chains can really uh, pick up and, and, and deliver that, that good to the consumer. And then you can create a more highly regulated structure, more regulated structure in states for THC, right? So I think if you separate medicinal supplements allow another path also for investigational new drugs, right? You don't want to close that off. You do want (laughs) to allow insurance and prescription drugs to develop. But if it's THC, put it in that category of regulation. That's your adult use cannabis industry. I think that's really where where you separate it. It's tough though. I mean, there's nuances and whatnot, but I think that's the best approach. Yeah. And in terms of how New York has set things up I and mean, what's what's your what's your critique? I mean, I guess what what has New York done well? What do you think is kind of working or not working about the programs? And, you know, we're we're recording this uh, beginning of October here. We've got an election coming up. You know, I'm yeah. kind of curious to see how I mean, I know New Jersey has got things on the ballot. I don't know. I'm kind of curious on your take on where where you suspect kind of the industry might go. But but give us a critique of the current market and then we can talk about the future. Yeah. So, you know, as you said, a lot of things are happening. But if we yeah. look back and we look at, say, the failure that medical cannabis is in New York, I mean, yeah. it's it's pretty stark, right? And it's because the program is overregulated. It's because there's only 10 businesses in the program. They're handicapped on what products they can sell and how much they can grow and, you know, in, in terms of expansion. And so the program itself has been a failure. I think there's only 100,000, 200,000 uh, patients in the program right now in a state of 20 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's not something to be modeled after and it's something to almost 
you know, put aside when we talk about adult use. On the hemp side, the hemp industry in New York grew faster than regulators anticipated, especially on the CBD supplement extract side, right? And so industry group that I'm involved in, the vice president of New York Cannabis Growers and Process Association, saw this happening in 2019 and was able to get the hemp extract bill passed into into law. And this bill provides a framework for, you know, regulating all hemp extract products, whether it's flour, all the way to, you know, vapes and uh, supplements. It's the labels, regulates, you know, how you can, uh, you know, the standardization of the products that can be sold in New York, which is important because New York is one of the only states that actually could do that, right? And because of the large marketplace, it can say, these yeah. are the standards. If you want to sell here, you need to adhere to these standards. So they've done a good, New York's done a good job laying that out. We're still waiting. And, you know, like you said, it's the beginning of October when we're recording this episode. We are still waiting for these regulations to be released because they go into effect on January 1st. So after January 1st, what you can sell and can't sell in New York uh, changes drastically. So, you know, but so we've had some success and some failure in New York in terms of cannabis for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And how do you think, I mean, how do you think the adult use side of you know, of, of cannabis is going to go New York, Northeast here. I mean, what's your, what's your kind of take on the, how things, you know, are likely to play out or what do you think the dynamics are going to be? I mean, I know there's, we're, you know, we're always talking about the kind of interplay between, you know, I'm, I'm, I live in Fort Lee on the, on the Jersey side of the GW bridge, you know, it's the GW bridge issue of like, you know, if, if New York goes first, if Jersey goes first, how this is all going to play out from a kind of a, an area economy point of view. Yeah, and I think the regional approach is is critical because, like you said, you have New Jersey most likely is going to legalize or pass the referendum to legalize cannabis for adult use. And then the legislature has to develop that that framework for regulations. And then Lieutenant Governor and the governor in Pennsylvania have been very outspoken in calling for, you know, some sort of regulatory framework, you know, Vermont's moving forward. Massachusetts is slowly but surely getting their marketplace (laughs) up and running, right? Yeah. So, you know, reading the tea leaves here, you got to think New York is going to go. And and the reality is New York should have legalized cannabis for adult use and set in motion this regulatory structure two sessions ago. Should have happened earlier this year. I think COVID really just derailed everything that was happening in the legislature right at the time that the budget negotiations were getting done. But Mm -hmm. Governor Cuomo has put the Cannabis Regulation and Tax Act, the CRTA, into his budget now for two years. So with the major need for revenue to shore up state and local budgets, I don't see that they have another choice but to to legalize it. So it really, I I think it gets done here, probably gets done in the budget. So meaning it gets done at the end of March, you know, in 2021. Mm -hmm. And then you're going to see about a year it's going to take really to roll out, I think, the first licenses. But it doesn't matter of what it looks like. The CRTA is a good bill. Uh, I think there needs to be a little more work on the licensing structure and also the tax structure. You know, it's hard to explain to a regulator or a lawmaker that if you tax something less, you're going to get more tax revenue. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah I, I mean, <laughs> and, you know, also you have to, you know, remind yourself that when was the last time New York State has lowered taxes, yeah. you know, retroactively. So we need to get it right from the beginning in terms of the tax rates. And we've seen that in other states. Yeah. And and what's your sense of the, you know, kind of the play between the um, legal and the illicit market relative to, you know, how these programs are set up? I mean, it's based on how other states have played out. Are there keys to how New York implements this, you know, whether it's tax or licensing or structure, or, you know, or, you know, 
supply side, like what are the things that need to be put in place to really make sure that we're we're maximizing the convergent of uh, the converting f- folks from the illicit to the uh, legal market? Yeah. So the the key is to allow the market to do its job and allow the free market, you know, capitalism to do the work because that is going to pretty much extinguish the illicit marketplace. There's no need for the illicit marketplace to exist if you can have dispensaries and places where you can buy cannabis in every town and located close enough for someone to go get the product, right? And have enough growers in the supply chain to exist. And that will be built out. What needs to happen is the government needs to anticipate that, not try to do it, you know, themselves, right? And and try to make every move in terms of developing the supply chain and just, you know, let let businesses do their job. So the first thing is is you need to lower the barrier of entry for a license application. License application shouldn't cost more than the liquor license, shouldn't be more than a few thousand dollars to apply, right? You know, you need to uh, relax some of the requirements maybe that you're looking for in with the applicant. Um, I think it's very important to, to allow what we call legacy operators or those in the illicit marketplace that run pretty sophisticated operations, whether it's in New York City or upstate New York, uh, to get involved in the, the legal program allow for marketing. Don't restrict marketing. Don't say packages have to be in black and white or they have to have, you know, it's just these kind of things are a little absurd, right? So don't get absurd with the regulations. And I think very quickly you see the illicit market, there's no need for it, right? I mean, I I think you could just look at what happened after prohibition, right? I mean, not many people, I would say less than 1%, if not smaller, go and buy moonshine as yeah. their primary source <laughs> to drink alcohol, right? Yeah, exactly. So let the brands do the work. Let the stores do the work and, and get in front of the consumer. And consumers will make an educated choice, right? I mean, they're going to want a product that, you know, they can see exactly what's in it, make sure that it's safe. And, uh, you know, there's also innovative products such as, uh, you know, non-flower products, uh, edibles, drinks, vapes that consumers are really striving for and and demanding. So if you allow all these products to be offered at a reasonable rate, and that means the taxes can't be too high, the effective tax rate can't be greater than 20%. If it's greater than 20%, you're going way past price parity with the illicit market, and it's just not worth it. Uh, for yeah. a consumer to pay 50% yeah. more every single time they purchase cannabis. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's nice to have it on the legal side, you know, tested, validated, you know, packaged properly and stuff. But at some point, it just becomes unsustainable for folks in terms of a choice. Yeah. Well, exactly. I, I mean, the, there's this, you know, misconception that it costs so much to bring a safe product to market that it's always going to be more than the illicit market. And that's just not true because there's inherent costs with bringing a legal good to the consumer also, right? And those costs pretty much cancel out. Where you add costs is overburdensome regulations and taxes that don't make sense. So right now, as it stands, we did analysis in the New York State, the Governor Cuomo's plan, the tax rate would be over 40%. The effective tax rate would be over 40%. That's what kills it in terms of price parity. If you lower that to an effective rate about 20%, you're very close. You're within about 15 to 20% of the price of the illicit market. And that's enough for most consumers from a convenience standpoint. And like you said, from a quality standpoint. Yeah. So in terms of the, um, you know, folks you're working with in New York here, what, what are the big issues, challenges that folks are having in terms of uh, cannabis businesses, you know, whether it's, you know, on the, the marijuana or the hemp side of things, like where are you seeing the biggest challenges and struggles? Yeah. So I think a lot of businesses kind of take for granted some of the services that they get offered, whether it's marketing or banking, you know, financial services. In the cannabis industry, hemp industry, adult use, whatever, it's always more difficult to get the same sort of services. So for instance, financial services. 
if you want to set up a website to sell your CBD products, you need payment processing, right? So Shopify has now allowed for hemp CBD businesses to, you know, work through their site, but you require a different payment processor. You can't just go through Shopify payments. These payment processors, the rates are double or triple the amount of any other product, right? And it's very difficult to get approved. So that's one barrier right there. You can't market, advertise on Facebook, Facebook and Instagram, right? That's a huge platform that people or businesses advertise on. So you're going to have access there. There's a lot of mediums that don't allow advertising. So reaching the consumer is difficult. The distributors that do distribute CBD products are usually looking at a larger margin than for most other goods, uh, comparable goods. There's a lot of big box stores, a lot of you know larger outlets that get products in front of your everyday consumer that just are not comfortable with the amount of risk posed by carrying a cannabinoid product. And so the FDA, I mean, the FDA really needs to step in and regulate it like a supplement. They have the ability to do so. They need, they just need to get it done. So I think those are a lot of the issues. And a lot of those issues can be cleared up just through regulations, through common sense regulations that are sitting in the House of Representatives, sitting in the Senate, you know, Safe Banking Act, and a lot of these a lot of these uh, bills, because, you know, we, we do talk, we, you know, work with a lot of banks and they say the same thing. It's like, you know, their hands are kind of tied from a compliance side. And so their burdens that they're putting on, it's, it's reflection of, of what they're facing when they're trying to get, you know, approved and go through their own compliance protocols. Yeah. When all this stuff gets passed and, you know, we hopefully we, you know, uh, at least decriminalize, deschedule some of the stuff at the federal level. I mean, is this industry just kind of developing every other industry or do you see, you know, cannabis, I mean, as much as, you know, you were kind of saying alcohol is the good model, like where, where does it fit? Where does it not fit? How do you see cannabis as unique? Where do, where do you think this kind of the future of the cannabis market is once we really have a, a federal national program in place? Yeah. So it's, it's actually really interesting because what you've seen over the past, you know, decade when new markets have opened to California, Colorado, Canada, these companies come in and they say, it's good enough just to get a product to the consumer. And now we're seeing, and you can see it with these publicly traded companies, you can see it with these large LPs in Canada and MSOs in, the, in uh, the United States that that's not enough. They're not making money. They're not profiting. And it's because they haven't created brand loyalty. Yeah. So I think branded products is going to be huge. And creating that brand loyalty, um, sticking with it, looking at it as a long-term perspective and creating your your customer base is going to be key. Innovative products. You know, the interesting thing is that many consumers and the consumers is an illicit market and, you know, in legal markets, they look for the strain name or the cultivar name of the flower yeah. uh, more so than anything else. Right. So they're like, okay, you know, I'm a big fan of sour diesel. Right. And, you know, it, regional, et cetera, these preferences. And so it's going to be a challenge for these producers in stores, et cetera, to create brands that are going to resonate with the consumer and that that consumer is going to pick that brand more than anything else. And I look back to alcohol, you look at any CPG marketplace, right? But you, you look at alcohol and say, you know, there's a lot of companies making IPAs, right? Mm -hmm. But yet their consumers are picking certain ones because they like the quality, they resonate with the brand, you know, they're loyal to the brand. And so, you know, I think that's going to develop, but it's going to take time because we, we're not going to have interstate commerce for a while, probably mm -hmm. at least 10 years, in my opinion. So, you know, uh, developing your, your customer loyalty in your states or your regions in the states, I think is going to be key. So that's where I see it as a little different from other marketplaces is there's still barriers. You can't really 
go national. You can't go nationwide very quickly or if if ever, yeah. we'll see. And you can't go globally with a brand either. So that definitely poses some challenges. But I think the branded products is going to be key. And I, you see that trend in Colorado. You see that trend in other states where people are purchasing you know, branded products and also non-flower products too, uh, a lot more than they do right when the uh, you know marketplace is first allowed in that state. Yeah. And do you think this is like a shift in customer preference or is this just because we're onboarding you know, new, new segments into cannabis that are, you know, not as kind of flower focused, you know, they, they want, uh, other formats. They want, they, they are looking for kind of brand recognition. I mean, what's your kind of underlying explanation of why this is happening? Yeah, Bruce, I think it all comes on access, right? So, you know, when you go from being able to choose two or three strains that you don't really know whether that's that strain or not from, mm-hmm. from your dealer, right. Yeah. To being able to walk into a store and have you know, 50 to 100 SKUs available for you. And then some might be on sale. Some might, you know, be a little more accessible. And you're like, I'm going to try that one out. I think that's really what it comes down to. And also the fact that when you legitimize an industry, you know, I mean, American business is, is innovative, right? And so they're always going to be trying to stay ahead of their competition and create more products that are different, different ways of consumption. I think that, you know, we're starting to realize that the cannabis consumer is way, you know, there's a lot more cannabis consumers than we thought. And the demographics of a cannabis consumer are a lot different than yeah. some of these preconceived notions, right? So they are striving for a product that maybe allows them to be a little more discreet, right? That fits in with their lifestyle a little more. And mm-hmm. flour doesn't always do that. You got to burn it. It smells, mm-hmm. you know, et cetera. So yeah, I think, you know, consumer preferences are going to change because the market is allowing it to change. There's greater access. Yeah, yeah. Ken, this has been a pleasure. If people want to find out more about you, about the work that you do, what's the best way to get that information? Yeah, so you can check out our, our website, ccgresults.com. We post free insights there. We have a newsletter that goes out every Friday that's very New York focused on the cannabis industry. And you can connect with us. You can connect with my team. You can also connect with me on LinkedIn, uh, Kaylin Castetter. Great. I'll make sure that the links, website, the your LinkedIn URL and everything are in the show notes so people can click through and get that information. Thank you so much for taking the time today. It's been a pleasure. Excellent. Thank you, Bruce. That's it for this episode of Thinking Outside the Bud. Be sure to subscribe using your favorite podcast app so you don't miss our future episodes. See you next time. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets, and access other great content, visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.